0: Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Millerman, and this is Millerman Talks. In the last two videos, we've been discussing the 2000... Again, okay. I'm going to cut that part. Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Millerman, and this is Millerman Talks. In the last two videos, I've been discussing the 2011 debate between Olavo de Carvalho and Alexander Dugan. The first video covered their opening statements about the question of the United States and the new post-war world order. The second segment, the second video was Dugan's response to De Carvalho and De Carvalho's rebuttal to Dugan's response. In this third and final video, I'm going to cover parts of the third segment of the debate and the conclusion. This is a semester's worth of material. I can't go into all of the detail, and I can't cover everything that's said. It's going to be a thin slice of what you'll find in the text itself, but the link to the debate is in the description of the video, and if you want to go dig into the details, do it there. I will be referring to a couple of passages in particular that you can go to look at, but this is no substitute for reading the text. I don't pretend to give you an exhaustive overview. Bear with me. It's a lot of material, and I'm going to be brief and selective. As you saw in the last video, Carvalho has been calling Dugin a political propagandist, objecting to Dugin's support for Russia and China, criticizing his willingness to collaborate with the Islamic World Project, and suggesting that Eurasianism itself is part of the syndicate's globalist attack on Christians, Jews, and American conservatives. In his response to de Carvalho's rebuttal, Dugan expresses disappointment in how the debate has gone so far. He expected that de Carvalho would represent Brazilian traditionalist philosophy, but the spirit has been quite different. Dugan states he's only continuing the debate begrudgingly, out of his obligations before the young Brazilian traditionalists who invited him to participate in it. So you see, things have gone quite awry. And you have to keep that in mind. The debate is on a level that satisfies neither Dugan nor de Carvalho. Neither is getting from the other what they'd like to get. Two different levels, two different tracks going on here simultaneously. Um, now, in fact, in this third segment of the debate, de Carvalho again tears into Dugan for what he sees as his imprecise, misleading, uninformed, and overly ideological utterances. Come here. Dugin, for his part, maintains that the contrast between himself and de Carvalho is not like de Carvalho says that one is a detached scientific observer and the other a warrior ideologue, but rather both are professor warriors. They both combine the functions of being detached and engaged seeking understanding and promoting action. Dugan says both of them are trying to understand the world and to advocate for what they see as good in it against what they see as evil in it. What accounts for the different visions is not that Dugan is an ideologue and de Carvalho a scholar, Dugan says, but rather that each of these professor warriors operates with different ontologies, anthropologies, and sociologies, largely civilizationally determined. Dugan responds to claims that he's a mere ideologue by suggesting that de Carvalho is ideological in playing on the false humanitarian sensibility of a Western audience when he attacks Russia and China and when he says nothing about US atrocities. For Dugan, de Carvalho is just positioning himself to be close to the Christian American right. And Dugan sees that as a a marginal, marginal, idiosyncratic, and disingenuous stance if you recall from the last video de carvalho says he's on the side of catholic and protestant christians the jewish people and american nationalists but remember he thinks they don't really stand a chance against the three monsters russia china global um western globalism and the islamic project but nevertheless they're the three powers that he says he supports despite being underdogs catholic and protestant christians the jewish people and american nationalists so dugan interprets that as follows he says the carvalho is on the paleoconservative side of the modern west now modern for dugan is a bad word the primary target of his philosophical ideological and practical ire is the modern he's against the modern world so to call carvalho modern a modern paleoconservative is a criticism Paleocons, Dugan writes, remember this is 2011, have lost the battle for the Republican Party and they've lost the battle against the globalists. They're losers. American paleoconservatives, he writes, the traditional American right, are doomed. Their discourse is incoherent, weak, and too idiosyncratic. Paleoconservatism is an inadequate response to globalism for Dugan. Anti-modern traditionalism is the way to go. To return to the tradition, he says, we need to accomplish the revolt against the modern world and against the modern West, alluding to Julius Evola. Absolute revolt, spiritual, traditionalist and social, parenthetically socialist. The West is in agony. We need to save the world from this agony and maybe save the West from itself. The modern and postmodern world must die. Only in that way can real traditional values be preserved. The best representatives of the deep and noble West, I'm still quoting, should be with the rest. Oh no, I'm not quoting. I'm paraphrasing. The best representatives of the deep and noble West should not be with the globalist West, but with the rest against the modern West. The Carvalho chooses the modern West, even though he pretends not to choose. So basically Dugan's criticism is this. You have the West, modern West, And you have the non-modern rest alternative. And if you try to find a third way or a third position that isn't between these two powers, like, for example, the paleo-conservative modern West, you're fighting a losing battle. It's not relevant. It's not serious. It doesn't have a chance. It's marginal and so on. And that is a big part of his criticism of uh, de Carvalho's proposals. So he continues to hate the East and to hate the globalist elite. You see, so neither one nor the other is Carvalho's position. Neither nor. Um, That is his personal decision. Maybe the decision of some North American Christian right, but it's too marginal and of no interest for me, Dugan writes. So as for his ideas about the syndicate, now if you remember from the last video or if you you haven't watched it, that's fine. But Carvalho claims that the global elite is not centered in the United States. It's not American. You can't equate global globalist elite with America because he says that the global elite, this syndicate, series of families that live outside of the United States whose goal is in part to destroy the United States. So Dugan calls that theory a banal and one-dimensional conspiracy theory. And he writes that there are many other theories of a more extravagant and brilliant kind in their idiotism. Including David Icke's theory about interdimensional reptilians. And Dugan has written a book called Conspirologia, Conspirology, a study of uh, the sociology of conspiracies, and that's what he's referring to in this section. He says it's a conspiracy theory, but there are much more interesting ones. If if you want to know about them, read my book. Um, The structural reason in De Carvalho's thought for this theory of, um, of the syndicate, of saying that the global elite is not US based, is that it allows him to to distinguish between the West he hates, the globalist West, and the West he loves, the modern paleoconservative American nationalist, pro-Christian, pro-Jewish West. Dugan is willing to agree that there is a syndicate, that there is a ruling global elite that must be opposed. But he again asserts, as he did in his opening statement, that it is hyper-individualistic, liberal, and concretely North American. It does support free market capitalism and not state socialism, as de Carvalho had argued um, in his response to Dugan's submission. So they're not actually really debating this point about the global elite and whether it's global or whether it's U.S. They're just exchanging incompatible assertions against one another. De Carvalho has offered some sources to follow up on for proof about the existence and nature of the syndicate and Dugan is responding by categorizing that as um, a uninteresting conspiracy theory with some truth to it but that one that misses the most important points. Um, here's how Du Carvalho, by the way, responds to Dugan's claim that it's, he has a conspiracy theory. So he says, any resemblance between my theory of the subject of history and any conspiracy theory, which raises the alarm about alien invasions or the reptilian government, is only an artificial, insulting, and forced analogy to which an inept debater will resort in desperation to get away from the discussion. Here again, Professor Dugan, he continues, proves himself incapable of finding his bearings amidst the complexity of the questions I have raised, and hides his lack of intellectual preparation behind a theatrical affectation of superiority. I never expected he would perform in front of the audience such an act of obscene moral striptease. So, that gives you a good sense of the tone of much of de Carvalho's response, so far as it consists of his criticizing Dugan for ideologically supercharged, analytically impoverished utterances. Much of his response is the substantial elaboration of arguments, however, and though I can't cover it all, I do recommend reading it. Um, In his response, the Carvalho's response to Dugan. He divides Dugan's text into 60 numbered paragraphs to which he responds one by one. So if you pull up the PDF file and you scroll to the third segment, you'll see number one a line from Dugan's text and De Carvalho's response. Sometimes just saying, what are you kidding me? This is absurd. And sometimes setting out um, substantial argumentation. So, throughout, throughout De Carvalho's response in segment three, he blasts Dugan again and again for dodging all the decisive questions and failing to respond to any of the arguments De Carvalho had made, for example, about the Orthodox Church, which you'll see in my other video, about individualism versus holism, whether those concepts even make sense in the way that Dugan uses them, whether it's true that Eurasia is holistic. And America is individualistic, given, given empirical statistics about adoption rates and so on. Um, he does, has nothing to say about arguments against Russian and Chinese brutality and all of the other points from the previous um, round of the debate, according to Dirk Carvalho. Dugan has merely pounded his chest in a display of affected superiority. So again, this is a th- constant theme throughout the debate after the initial exchange that de Carvalho sees himself as a trained scholar and practitioner in the art of argumentation, to use his words, and he sees Dugan as a circus gesticulator whose goal is to make himself look good and his opponent look like a clown. Um, And therefore, he feels the need to respond to all of the statements that Dugan makes about him so that he can show the mask Dugan has put on his face doesn't at all correspond to the reality. Not all 60 paragraphs are equally interesting and important. Some of them are kind of funny, but as far as the substance, they're not all equally important. I would direct your attention, if you feel like pulling up the PDF and uh, navigating through it, to point number six, in which De Carvalho responds to a claim Dugan had made that every human thought is politically oriented and motivated. So, just a quick word of context remember, Olavo had said, I mean, De Carvalho had said, you have to separate the function of the scientist scholar and the ideologue activist. And he basically said, Dugan is the ideologue activist and I am the scientific scholar. But at least he said, first, first you have to have the detached observation and then you have your commitment to whatever moral project follows uh, from that observation. They're two different functions. And Dugan had said, no, there's no such thing as disinterested observation. Um, All human thought is politically oriented and motivated. So De Carvalho analyzes that statement. He says that's the state. That statement is an ideologue's bumper sticker slogan that shouldn't pass as serious philosophical analysis or debate. And if you want to see the way in which he responds, navigate to paragraph six and read it. Um, read it through. You'll see he shows that that statement doesn't make sense. Like for example, if you're thinking about going to the bathroom, is that politically oriented? probably not. So you have to modify it. It's not that all thoughts are politically motivated. Now, the the problem the problem really is that there's some truth and meaning to what Dugan says, and there's definitely a lot of uh, truth behind De Carvalho when he shows that this statement is so general that he can't have meant it that way, and therefore he criticizes it for its lack of analytical rigor. But what the debate is missing is... A goodwill effort on their part to understand well what is the truth that he might have been getting at when he said that rather than just discrediting and that goes both both ways um so unfortunately they didn't have a mediator who could translate basically one to another in a way to make the conversation more productive but de carvalho is right dugan does throw around a lot of claims that don't necessarily bear uh, rigorous philosophical analysis but at the same time aren't necessarily reducible to cheap political propaganda in the way that De Carvalho says. Anyway, in his response, De Carvalho also opines that Dugan doesn't understand conceptual, terminological, and historical subtleties. He's constantly trying to correct that carelessness, or at least to point it out and to um, call it out. Let me give you an example. Dugan had written that the will to power permeates human nature in its depths. And again, the context here was to say you can't, you're not just a disinterested uh, scientific observer of the political scene, you're also the active agent of Western individualist civilization, a point that de Carvalho pushed back against strongly. So in that context, Dugan writes that the will to power permeates human nature in its depths. And in numbered paragraph seven, where you can find it, Carvalho says that decreeing the primacy of the political means reducing the contemplative life to the will to power. If everything is the will to power, that means the contemplative life is also the will to power. But that's absurd, he says, and not compatible with Dugan's professed support for traditionalism. Because part of of traditionalism is reverence for the contemplative life as something distinct from the life of mere action. Moreover, he writes, will to power as the ultimate explanation of human acts is not a valid description of reality. And it's not even a theory. It's a morbid projection. Will to power is a factor in human acts, he writes, but not the predominant one and not always to the same extent. Are all human acts permeated by will to power, he asks? Certainly. But to what degree? And what is the proportion between this motivational force and the other forces involved? When you have sex with your wife, there's certainly a tiny amount of will to power at play. But if it predominates over will to pleasure, affection, the impulse to please the beloved one, etc., then it will not be an act of licit sex anymore, but rape, he writes. And ask your wife whether she cannot tell the difference. In other words, you have a brief and general statement that will to power and political motivation is omnipresent. And then you have De Carvalho saying... Slow down there, champ. Let's draw some distinctions. Let's let's get some degrees. Let's see what other factors are there. And sometimes it's slightly, well, not condescending, but when he's, he suggests that Dugan has never thought through these questions, that he has been poorly educated, that he is just a sloppy and careless thinker. And my sense is that the truth is not quite... Um, what De Carvalho says about that and that there's an opportunity for them to, there was something like an opportunity for them to have a more productive dialogue about what the other forces are than will to power, how exactly Dugan understands it, why it matters, is he willing to say that it is or isn't the most important thing. But anyways, I'm just trying to convey to you the nature of De Carvalho's response to Dugan's claims. So that was an example of how he tries to, he tries to subject an ideological slogan or what seems like an overgeneralization to more careful analysis in order to show that Dugan has uh, oversimplified by far. Now, Dugan had also said in his response that we can't compare... So if you remember, de Carvalho had said, you support Russia, China, and the Islamic world over the United States project, but nobody has shed more blood than Russia, China in recent, uh, centu- in recent century. And you can't tell me that Russia cares about holism, when you compare the behavior of their um, corrupt societies and autocratic leaders to a much to a solidarity of human dignity in among american individualists and dugan had said look it's overly quantitative to try to compare the number of deaths you know Chi- what are you going to say that chinese have killed this many million and americans have killed this many million dugan criticized the application of quantity criteria to this moral calculus and de carvalho is having none of it he says that argument is totally ridiculous what is it that differentiates he writes a personal misfortune from a global tragedy if not the number of victims one person gets hit by a car or a plane with 150 people goes down or a city of hundred thousand gets wiped out well the number seems to matter the number of victims seems to matter in terms of the weight of the global tragedy And he says, this is no presumption. It's not a presumption. It's the definition of the terms being used. Genocide is the systematic annihilation of an ethnic, political, or religious community. In other words, it has quantity built into it. And he says, look, if the number of human beings murdered does not serve as a measure of the gravity of a genocide or a democide, extermination of a civilian population by its own government why should we distinguish at all between the Holocaust and any individual homicide? If if the number of people killed means nothing, then all of these concepts just become mush. So he says, Dugan, please, spare me. Quantity does matter. It helps us to draw qualitatively relevant distinctions. Uh, moreover, he continues, just to give you, a, again, a sense of just how, just how vigorously he wants to oppose Dukin's claims here he says it's a complete inversion of all sense of proportion an insane loggeria of one who having no argument desperately tries to bewilder the audience to prevent it from seeing the bare and crude reality okay and remember I said there's 60 points I'm going through two or three of them here at most but are you beginning to get a sense of what some of them are like so if Dugan says, it's, you're either with the West or you're with the rest against the West, De Carvalho will say, hang on a second here. Let's draw some distinctions. There's not just a West and the rest. There are different categories. There are different um, actors. There are different allegiances. And moreover, one of De Carvalho's um, criticisms is that Dugan is discounting non-powerful alternatives. And if I could find that passage for you, I think, it's, um, I think it's important to read. So bear with me for a minute here. Let me see if I can find it. Let me read you this whole... And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a long, uh, a long passage here. It's in section 41. It's just skipping ahead. Fabricating unity. So he provides an excerpt of something that Dugan had written in his response uh, concerning precisely what I was saying about aligning you're either the West or you're the rest and you can't be this marginal position like a paleoconservative and here's what De Carvalho writes Professor Dugan completes here Professor Dugan completes his striptease divesting himself of his last piece of garment given that it's obviously impossible to reconcile at the doctrinal level proposals as antagonistic as communism and Islamism fascism and anarchism traditional spirituality and dictatorships that crush religion by fire and sword, Eurasianism artificially builds a negative unity based on sheer hatred of a supposed common enemy. Hence, he has to divide the world into two, the West against the rest and the rest against the West, and then set out to build the ideal city, quote-unquote, based on nuclear war and the destruction of the planet. It's no wonder that such a man can only imagine himself to be hated because hatred is quite clearly the sole sentiment he knows. Now we're getting to the passage that I wanted to emphasize in particular. What is even more significant is that he excludes as irrelevant the possibility of allying with forces that are alien and oblivious to this conflict by calling them too marginal and of no interest. Whatever values that are not capable of being embodied in a geopolitical power are indeed contemptible and of no interest to him. Throughout history, the highest values have been many times on the weak side and with the few. The history of the origins of Christianity illustrates that in the clearest way. Actually, the Christianization of Russia, undertaken by unarmed monks surrounded by countless dangers, is also an exemplary case. Now the lines, the crucial lines. Professor Dugan forbids us to side with that which is simply right. He forbids us to love the good simply for its own sake. He only allows us a choice between powers. Powers which are armed to the teeth. Had he been a Bible character, he would have refused to take the side of that minority sect whose leader was flayed with a whip and hung defenseless on the cross. So Dugan says, you must make a choice and your choice must be between the most powerful and relevant alternatives. De Carvalho says, truth is often on the side not of the powers but of the marginal of the weak and of those as a christian who hang defenseless on the cross now of course this just opens up a world of uh, potential discussion and interpretation and i leave that to you with your friends with your drinks and good company to try to work out um, the details But it's, it's an, it's a, it's a powerful, um, critique that ultimately goes unanswered. Okay, back to my notes here. So another interesting objection that he makes comes in point 15, where he writes this. So remember, Dugan says, you support the individualistic, materialistic, secular, modern, progressive West. All of that is bad. And I support the anti-modern traditionalist alternative to the West, whether it's embodied in Russia, China, or Islam, or anything else. In the, now, his position is actually more nuanced than that, but in the context of the debate, that's roughly what he has said. Now, de Carvalho says, Professor Dugan's mind was much m- m- molded much more by Western intellectuality than by any Eastern spiritual tradition. While one of my formative influences, he says about himself, was Swami Dayananda Saraswati, director of the Academy of Vedic Studies of Bombay. After that experience, I still allowed myself to be imbued with Orientalism to the point of becoming the author of uh, Islamic Studies um, that won an award from the government of Saudi Arabia. The difference between us lies in our personal intellectual experience, not in our civilizations. If you saw the last video, Dugan takes himself into Carvalho, kind of following in a way the Carvalho's um, initial statements about this. They're civilizational representatives. The Carvalho says, If you remember, Dugan had said, I'm more Brazilian than you are, Mr. America. And now Carvalho says, I'm more Eastern than you are, Mr. Eurasia. Okay, tit for tat. Um, But, hey, there may be something to it. Now, I can imagine him saying, you want an award from Saudi Arabia, okay? But the Islamic Eurasianism isn't Saudi Arabian, it's Iranian. But, okay, we'll leave that for another occasion. Um, That's kind of how the debate goes. There's a potentially pretty interesting philosophical point of disagreement between the two of them covered in points, uh, in a couple of the points of de Carvalho's response for example paragraphs 25 and 26 so Dugan had said without going into a lot of detail about it that subject object dualism is a specific feature of the west okay so they got into the territory of thinking about what is the human being what is knowledge what is reality what is being what is existence okay, we're, become, we're on the territory that I myself prefer, the philosophical side of all of these questions. What is the human being and what's our place in the whole? How do we know it? How do we understand it? And how do different interpretations of those things impact our political uh, outlook? So what's the relationship between the philosophical dimension of our human self-understanding and our political ideologies? And in that context, Dugan had raised the uh, con- kind of like common by now Heideggerian criticism of Western modern subjectivity as c- being comprised of a subject-object dualism. Now, his response, De Carvalho's response to this makes me think that he... Now, it's 2011, so it's hard for me to think back what exactly was in Dugan's head in 2011, but I, that's when I started translating him. But having translated him and studied him for these years, I can tell you this response shows me That there's a deep and fundamental misunderstanding. Like at the most, at the philosophical core, there is a deep understanding, misunderstanding and a disagreement and a misunderstanding between these two. So here's what De Carvalho writes. First, I'll read what this line again that Dugan said and De Carvalho's response to it. The subject-object dualism is rather a specific feature of the West. That's Dugan. Now De Carvalho comments. What nonsense. No oriental doctrine has ever denied this dualism as a datum of experience. A datum, by the way, implicit in the simple fact that we do not know everything that is around us. Actually, continuing the quotation, what some doctrines did was to deny absolute validity to dualism on the plane of metaphysical universality. I say some doctrines because even the most extreme proponent of the doctrine of absolute unity, Ibn Arabi, acknowledged as an insurmountable residual dualism between the soul and God as a requirement resulting from divine love itself. Okay, let me step back and just explain. This is a short little paragraph response, but it requires some unpacking. So Dugan says subject object dualism is a feature of the West. Carvalho says, Everybody recognizes that you are not the world, that you're different things. And even, the, even those mystics who talk about divine unity with God, even they separate God and the soul, even if at some point they see them fused in an act of mystical love. So he's like, don't give me this, don't give me this nonsense about subject-object being a Western invention or Western discovery or Western conception. It's given in experience everywhere and at all times that you and the world are distinct. That shows me a total disjunction between their universes of discourse, where de Carvalho finds himself and where Dugan finds himself for this reason. For Dugan, the subject-object dualism, when he says that, and you know this, like if you study Heidegger or, or if you study any, anybody who goes with the critique of Descartes and so on, that doesn't mean that the human being, like, he's not saying everybody always believed that the human being and the world are identical until the West discovered that they're separate. It means the interpretation of human being and the interpretation of world as subject and object has a very specific philosophical constitution. It it implies a whole set of axioms about reality and knowledge and It's the interpretation of human being and world, so to speak, as subject and object. That is a modern invention that he wants to criticize in order to uncover a more fundamental relationship of human being and world, or of Dasein and sign, or of God and soul in the Ibn Arabi sense. These things are not equivalent. So when Dugan says subject-object dualism, he doesn't mean every division between oneself and the world. He means the interpretation of oneself and the world as subject and object. Now, the bizarre thing here is that de Carvalho repeatedly emphasizes that he's trained in philosophy and Dugan is a hack. But at this kind of crucial phase of the debate where they're talking about the potential understanding of the human being that underlies their different... Uh, world conceptions or ideologies or worldviews or philosophies he misses the mark just totally and it's so bizarre because he, the the potential area of overlap here like the this could have been a beautiful spark let's talk not about Descartes modernity subject and object but let's talk about Ibn Arabi and the relationship between the soul and God, and this deeper dimension of human being, which is so vital for Dugan. In fact, even Ibn Arabi himself plays an important role in Dugan's thought through Henri Corbin, the Heideggerian scholar of Islamic mysticism. So this is just, it's really mind-blowing. The, the, the misfire here, totally unintentional but hugely revealing, in my view, I'm predisposed to, to always focus on the philosophical dimension as the most important one, which is not at all to downplay the, the legitimate refutations Carvalho might have or the legitimate counterpunches Dugan might make. Um, but in my view, like the crux of their disagreement is that whatever misunderstanding is going on at this level, that they have such different conceptions of what philosophy is, that their Carvalho can take it for granted. That you'd have to be an idiot to think subject object dualism is modern, whereas Dugan can take it for granted that you'd have to be an idiot not to know that. So, what's the difference there? And the same thing is repeated in, in uh, section 26 about logical essence, where Dugan writes that logical essence is a Western concept. I mean, that's how it's translated in English. I don't know exactly what it said in the Russian, but um, De Carvalho comes back and says there are other philosophies. Oh, no, sorry. Let me again. I'll read you the Dugan, read you the Carvalho. So Dugan says, logic essence is another purely Western concept. There are other philosophies with different conceptual structures. Islamic, Hindu, and Chinese, for example. The Carvalho comes back and says, to say that logic essence is a purely Western concept amounts to saying that outside the West, nobody has ever been able to distinguish between the content of a mere idea and the real nature of its being. Oh, how dumb these Orientals should be in order for Professor Dugan's statement to be worth something. And yet he says that I'm the one who's offending them. So the reason that sounds so dumb to, to Professor Calvalho is because he is misunderstanding the meaning of Dugan's claim because they're interpreting these words in light of completely different understandings of, of, uh, of their philosophical significance. And I venture to say that the crucial difference here is their understanding of Heidegger. You can't know what these words mean for Dugan, what these arguments mean, without having passed through trial by fire together with Heidegger. And there's uh, there's abundant evidence, especially in section 25, that de Carvalho, whatever else the merits of his arguments might be, hasn't done so. So it's like, if I can leave you with one, those, the philosophers or the... Um, those of you sympathetic to philosophy, who may be watching this, who've watched it, sat through this much of it, thank you. I hope you found it interesting. This is really the crux. Um, this is the crux of the debate. Those sections on reality, concept, beings, ex- existence, subjectivity, subject-object split. That's, I think, where you'll find the. Uh, that's where the magic happens. Okay, moving on briefly. So disagreement for the traditionalists among you. Disagreement over Rene Guenon is raised in paragraphs 33 to 35, with De Carvalho relying on the fact that Guenon blamed all the evil in the world on the seven towers of the devil, two of which he says are located in Russia and one in the post-Soviet space. So what does that mean? You can't, you can't use Guenon to appeal to Eurasia against the West because in Guenon's own view of the origins of evil, Three-sevenths are in, uh, in the Soviet space or post-Soviet space. All right, let me see here. So, so much for the 60 points. As I told you, I can barely scratch the surface of it. I've just tried to show you some of the passages that I think are most interesting. Now, the fourth section is their concluding statements. Here, I'm going to be even more brief than I've been about the third section. Let me just leave you with this passage from, uh, from Dugan's concluding remarks. So the key word for the fourth political theory is multipolarity in all senses, geopolitical, cultural, axiological, economical, and so on. The important vision of nous, intellect, of the Greek philosopher Plotinus corresponds to our ideal. The intellect is one and multiple at the same time because it has all kinds of differences in itself, not uniform or mixed but taken as such with all their particularities the future world should be noetic in some way multiplicity diversity should be taken as the as richness and treasure not as a reason of inevitable conflict many civilizations many poles many centers many sets of value on one planet in one humanity here he directly correlates Civilizational multipolarity with Neoplatonic doctrine of intellect, later reflected in the title of his multi-volumed work, No Omachia: Battle of the Intellect. No, Vaini, Vaina, Vaini Oma, Battles of the Intellect. So, one, noose. Anyway, this correlation of multipolarity with Neoplatonism, I suggest, is where this debate and the study of Dugan in general could go if it wants to go beyond just accusations of political propagandizing. Um, That said, De Carvalho makes good points in response to some of Dugan's claims. He raises legitimate concerns, he clarifies concepts that were left unspecified. He shows some, at times, a carelessness and potentially confusion or even moments where, indeed, the ideological dimension of Dugan's work may push out uh, the scientific or the theoretical or the philosophical side. So, look at the debate, read the debate. The split between paleo conservative modern western american conservatives who support protestant and catholic christianity and the jewish people as carvalho defined himself and on the other hand eurasianists and fourth political theorists of a dugan style is a legitimate uh, split worth understanding and let me just add this before uh, before i say goodbye when bolsonaro was elected did i say that correctly let me see here Bolsonaro, yeah. When Bolsonaro became president of Brazil, there was a lot of talk um, of the rise of right-wing populists, fascists, nationalists around the world, equating all of them one to another. Netanyahu equals Putin equals Trump, equals Bolsonaro equals Orban, and so on. But here you actually see um, that there's a criticism of bonasaro's ideologue or bonasaro's state philosopher if that's what he's become or at least this thinker whose ideas underpin according to bonasaro's son uh, some of the policy and ideology of the new brazilian government you actually see a traditionalist criticism of that and without understanding debates like this one we'll put everything in the same soup and we won't be able to draw any distinctions and policy will be bad. Analysis will be bad and confusion will reign. So hopefully you found this debate to be, uh, hopefully you found these videos to be a helpful introduction to the debate. I'm sorry if I droned on and on. It's hard to cover 167 pages in three short videos, but I do hope that you've enjoyed it. Leave your comments, like the video, share it, um, follow the channel. There's a lot more to come and, uh, Thanks a lot for watching. See you again soon. Good? Can I stop? Oh my goodness, 50 minutes.